Hey everyone, you're listening to the Parason Podcast. I apologize that we took so long to release our third episode, but we're taking a few steps to hopefully avoid such a long hiatus between episodes in the future, because we know that can be a little annoying. But in this episode, Jared and I have a conversation with the Reverend Dr. Sarah Batchelard, who is the founding director of Benedictus Contemplative Church, which is an ecumenical community based in Canberra, Australia. She's a theologian, a retreat leader, and a priest in Anglican orders, and is a member of the World Community for Christian Meditation, and an honorary research fellow at the Australian Catholic University. And so as you can imagine, she has many wonderful insights into contemplative peacemaking that she shares with us in this episode. Thank you for your time. Um, as a way of starting, what has been this journey to uh, contemplative prayer for you? Uh, I think it's been a longish journey. Uh, I guess I, I grew up in and around the Christian tradition. I wasn't from a particularly religious family, but you know, I certainly was introduced to going to church and that kind of thing and was drawn to it. I think during my kind of teenage years and, and early 20s, I was, I was really drawn to faith but struggled to make it my own, struggled to feel like I got on the inside of it. Um, people would say things about God or about Jesus and I'd be thinking, yeah, but, you know, <laughs> how did you get there? <laughs> Show me the workings. Um, yeah. I ended up leaving the church for about 10 years because I just couldn't make any sense of it. It just sort of was sounded, sounded nice, full of promise, but it, it didn't, it didn't come alive. Um, and then, and then I guess um, I went through some difficult stuff in life and um, like many people do discovered, a, I guess, a way of mindfulness and, and meditation originally through the Buddhists. So yeah. Uh, reading Thich Nhat Hanh, uh, Miracle of Mindfulness, and uh, Pema Chodron, uh, When Things yeah. Fall Apart, so the, the kind of the, the, the classics from a Western point of view of the... <laughs> That's right, yeah. Um, and so I did know before that that there was such a thing as a mystical tradition in the, in, in the Christian tradition, but I guess that hadn't been accompanied with an actual teaching on how to pray that way or how to practice contemplation and so it uh, originally it was through the reading those books that I learned about a meditation as a practice yeah and and so originally I guess I came to it like many people do partly because of needing to deal with my own anxiety and and a sense of uh, craving for some kind of spaciousness interiorly um, and that was the beginning and it was kind of through that that I found myself both drawn back into the Christian tradition because through that practice began to experience that in a different way and that then led eventually to discovering the Christian uh, meditation community, the World Community for Christian Meditation, which has been, you know, a, a key part of my journey. Um, so looking back on that journey, on that pilgrimage um, that you just described, is there a, a main theme or a main a framework or a philosophy that animates your practice, kind of a go-to principle that you uh, invoke when describing what sets you on the path of contemplation 
and meditation and mysticism, but as well um, connecting that to peacemaking. A key word for me um, is the word integrity or, or integration hmm. um, and integrity in the sense of, of wholeness um, and whole making. So part of, I think, what set me on that intentional journey which led to discovering these teachings about meditation was a sense of my own um, lack of integrity <laughs> in that in that deeper sense of of, of not not um, not being together with myself if if you like um, and kind of yearning uh, for that but the other dimension has animated me is a is a is a sense of of yearning for integrity between the inner and the outer life um yeah. between both my own inner life and and my outer life in the world but more than that a sense that there's a connectedness between this the deep truth that the spiritual wisdom traditions hold and the flourishing of the life of the world and so mm -hmm. seeking seeking access to that integrity both for me personally but also in terms of uh, engagement with the life, with the needs of the world, when I think about it, has been a key principle, that idea of, of wholeness and whole-making. Mm -hmm. And I think for uh, a lot of people, Sarah, particularly in uh, Christian meditation circles, your particular journey isn't that unique. Uh, I have many friends that um, it was Joanna Macy or Thich Nhat Hanh or the yeah. Dalai Lama that uh, brought them back to Jesus, if you want to <laughs> frame, it, <laughs> frame it like that. I, yeah. I think um, what's exciting for me regarding your own work is, uh, Slavoj Žižek would call it um, Western forms of Buddhism, which are almost the commercialization of um, mm. forms of Gnosticism, which make it very digestible to find an inner peace while the world burns at the cost of the poor and, and literally the earth. Your own going deep in the Christian tradition has meant that you've returned in such a way that there is such a deep integrity that there is something mm. contagious to your work. I, I would be interested to hear you talk a little to um, this current crisis of the lack of integrity in some forms of the Christian faith and what's the dangers of a christian faith without a contemplative practice um before we talk about um uh, practices themselves and um uh, your work as a theologian and i i love your talk uh, around um ethics not as ideology but ontology and mm. I, I would love to um, open that up as well regarding what it is to love your enemy but can I give you permission to speak a little bit to the dangers of a Christianity without um, contemplative um, practice? I think I, I see dangers in in a couple of different directions. One is probably the one I've kind of written and spoke about most, which is it seems to me, which I've, I've tended to describe 
as the danger of moralism or the danger of, of ideology. Um, yeah. but, but that I that sense of um, you know religion in general, but but Christianity as as something to get right and as something to seek our own self justification really. And I think it's ironic actually that some of the wings of the church that seem to me most to talk about to be most kind of um, staunchly Protestant and, you know, justification by faith often end up being the most moralistic and, and, and yeah. moralism is a, is a sign of self-justification. That's right. <laughs> um, so, and, and I guess I, I relate to that because in a way that was my, my journey the Christianity I had to leave behind when I left the church was that kind of implicitly moralistic in the sense that it was about trying to be good, um, which, you know, I know so many of us are formed in. Again, it's, it's no, no unique story here. Um, and one of the issues there is that it's not actually life-giving um, to try and be good <laughs> all the time in, in, yeah. in that sense. But it also actually, it disguises your vices as virtues yep. so you actually don't get to the deep root of your own sinfulness to use that language or your mm -hmm. alienation yeah. um you know so so you can't be liberated so i think that's one danger of christianity without contemplation without the, the letting go of that striving that talking to god which is often justifying myself subtly before God um, and yet and then on the other side and I guess this might be a danger that's more associated with more lib, you know so-called liberal or progressive Christianity is the danger of disincarnation so so <laughs> wow say more about that that's fascinating well, again, I, I think you touched on it yourself, actually, when you talked about the, the way the kind of Buddhist um, things can be appropriated in a Western context, that it's, a, it's about, um, you know, certain ideas, certain values, certain principles, but the, the idea that bodily, like this is a whole body transformation. You have to bring yourself, your whole self, body, <laughs> um, mind and spirit naked before God to undergo something and be transformed at that level, I think progressive Christianity is, is rationalistic. And, yeah. and, 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 and it's my, my experience that the practice of contemplation will often precipitate the kind of crisis which is an embodied crisis of some That's sort. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we should give a, a warning at um, the start of every episode uh, whether it's a, a, around um, engaging the nonviolence of Christ or uh, actually entering into um, the contemplative journey because it is so traumatic. Yeah. I mean, I can remember at one point thinking, God damn it, they didn't tell me about this in Sunday school. <laughs> you know, I was going to be much sweeter and lighter than this. <laughs> so that, that whole idea that it's so messy and feels so unholy when you're, when you're in that process of being unmade. Yeah, and um, suddenly the Rhineland mystics uh, talk of um, sin is not an abstract theological category. It's an experience, um, uh, and not necessarily of self-hatred, but self-awareness, which can be completely, yeah. <laughs> self-hatred is easier. I'm yeah. in control of 
I hate myself. Um, or what it is to love the enemy within. It's a devastating experience. Give me moralism over that kind of mercy of God any day. I can control my moralism. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that experience of, of seeing... Uh, well, a word I, I, I kind of like to describe this. It's a, no, it's an American kind of word, but has that visceral sense of I'm a schmuck. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like, and, and it's to, a good Yiddish term. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> and, and to really kind of know that and know you can't do anything about it. Yeah. Like I can't divest myself of my own schmuckitude. Um, <laughs> 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 As I understand it, I think that's what the desert tradition is talking about when it talks about contrition or tears of tra- contrition, you know, that, that mm. sense that I see it and, yep, there it is. <laughs> yeah, and for both Andrew and myself, um, much more Andrew, I guess, because you converted, Andrew, I'm, I'm still uh, being prayed for, but um, the, the orthodox... Um, and what they talk about as the gift of tears is directly related to the experience of the mercy of God. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that is a joyful experience. And for so many, that all sounds too contradictory, that that's yeah. separate, but somehow that, mm-hmm. that belongs together for those who are learning to pray. Mm. As, as St. Uh, and the Athanite um, talks about praying scalding tears for the entire world, right? Um, mm. And so you have that image, I think. And you were kind of going in this this direction, Sarah, but one thing that I would like to know, you've, you've looked at some of the dangers. I see a number of, of challenges in bridging the contemplative side and the outer action, whether it's peacemaking or anything else. And there's challenges in bridging the two because of the dangers on either side if, if you mm-hmm. focus too much on one side over and against the other. And so I wonder if, if you could you know, articulate some of the, the challenges that you see in bridging that divide between the contemplative and, and the outer actions and then maybe um, give us a way forward um, how to overcome those challenges. I remember a, a time when I was talking about meditation, contemplative prayer in a seminar context and um, there was someone there who I respect very much whose ministry had been much more kind of outwardly focused in terms of, you know, overtly the work of justice and, mm-hmm. um, you know, really a, 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 a prophetic and a committed fine person and that was his concern. He, he said, look, if, if Jesus had spent his whole time meditating, um, he would never have been crucified. And, <laughs> and at the time... In, in previous episodes, we've talked about um, Philip Berrigan's <laughs> disagreements with Thomas Merton. Yeah. And um, Ber- Berrigan said the same thing. Uh, Jesus uh, wasn't a monk, he was an activist. Yeah, yeah. And, and that comment kind of floored me and I, I felt like I didn't have much to, to say in response at the time. Actually, earlier this year, I, um, there was the, the, the passage in, early in the Gospel of Mark where 
it's the first episode of Jesus' public ministry in Mark's gospel where he's, you know, he goes to Peter's mother-in-law's house and, um, you know, gets fed and then immediately the Sabbath was over, the, the crowds are at the door and it's talked about the crowds and many were healed and, you know, blah, 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 blah. So there's this kind of immediate full-on engagement with the needs of the world. Mm-hmm. And then the very next thing narrated is you know, early in the morning, while it was still dark, he got up and went up by himself to pray. Mm-hmm. Like immediately. And it seemed, and afterwards I thought that idea, yeah, of course if Jesus had spent all this time meditating, he wouldn't have got crucified. But if he'd spent all his time sitting at the Last Supper, he wouldn't have got crucified either. And nobody thinks <laughs> he had the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in other words, it's an unfair characterization of what... Yeah life is about which is that we pray in a certain way with a certain kind of vulnerability and availability as jesus prayed and that itself sends us back out into the world and in jesus ministry i think you see this rhythm of contemplation and action Mm. um and it seems to me clearly when, when contemplation is nothing more and I guess this is where it it, it, it it comes down to what do we mean by contemplation, what is the discipline of contemplative prayer. Mm-hmm. If it's a kind of pseudo, what I would describe, I guess, as pseudo form, which is just about internal retreat in order so that I can get my blood pressure down and feel a bit calmer, that can become you know, inward-looking narcissistic, and then there is a divide between engagement with the world. Mm-hmm. When it is a practice of seeking to be radically available and open to God, what is it going to do but draw you back into the world that God loves? Um, and yet, hopefully, mm-hmm. the way it draws you back in, and I guess you can see it again in this passage of Mark's Gospel, Jesus goes up by himself to pray um he's there for quite a long time because it says the disciples had they went looking for him and when they found him he said to them let us go on to other towns because it's other other places need to hear the message in other words what seems to have been clarified in that space was what do i do next so that the question of discerning action is deeply connected, I think, to the practice of contemplation. So that's kind of, yeah. I think, concepts like discernment, um, which is, matter so much in terms of, of action being, you know, real action as opposed to just activity, mm-hmm. um, is intrinsically connected to this contemplative dimension. About contemplative action as opposed to contemplation versus action. Okay. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that it is really as simple as maintaining a rhythm of contemplation and prayer and then going out in the world and, and engaging the issues, the challenges of the day, and really that's it? Or is there one that um, maybe we neglect more than the other, that we need to focus on more deliberately, more intentionally? Um, because what I guess what I'm what I'm looking at is on the one hand, if you're if you're talking about action, then there's the problem of apathy and withdrawal and things like that, right? When you look at the other side in terms of contemplation, you don't want action just to be this contrived, superficial kind of mechanical um, yeah. action that's not rooted in an inner life, an inner transformation. Um, but I I don't know exactly 
which one <laughs> needs more attention or if they need equal attention. Um, I, again, I'm looking at the life of Christ as well, right? And, and there's this deliberate, you know, stealing away and, and uh, praying and, and so on. And yet he does do deliberate things on the mm-hmm. action mm-hmm. end as well. Yep. But yep. also trouble kind of seems to find him <laughs> as well, just based yep. on who he yep. is as, yep. uh, as yep. the Son of God, as the divine in the presence of this post-lapsarian, this post-fall world, mm-hmm. um, the yep. messiness of it. And, and inevitably there's going to be, well, the things that took place in his life, right? Um, mm-hmm. So I, I guess, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm wondering if, if there is one that needs to be focused on more than the other or if, if it's truly mm-hmm. a balanced uh, rhythm. I think that's a really great question and I feel like it's one I, I kind of wrestle with for myself. I, I wonder if there are a few things that play into that or res, kind of trying to respond well or think well about that question. There is an issue both of the person and the context that's part of it. Uh, I know for myself, my natural tendency is is towards the contemplative side. And I, you know, I love the chance to (laughs) go and retreat or withdraw or, you know, be silent or still or alone. And so a question I'm always, you know, that I feel I have to try to keep honest with myself is does that kind of natural tendency lead me into too much well let's just wait and see and discern before we act and you you know and then do I end up ever doing anything and yeah so so I feel like in terms of keeping myself honest that's a question I need to ask myself and maybe for someone who's naturally more of a an, an activist tendency maybe for them the question will be the other way around am I using my action as a way of avoiding certain things when actually we need to stop for a bit. And, you know, so maybe mm-hmm. each of us has to discern where our own delusions or illusions may be <laughs> around yeah. it. And I think also context makes a difference. Culture and context makes a difference. Um, I think in the West we have tended to be certainly if not an activist culture, a kind of a, a an instrumental culture. You know, yeah. it's all about yeah. how what I do, yeah. kind of obvious thing to say, but, you know, visiting older people, a lot of what they struggle with is, well, I'm useless now, and they'll use That's, the word yeah. useless, you know, like I, 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 I can't do anything. Um, and in that culture, I think we are in danger of neglecting the deeper springs that we need to be in tune with if we're going to act wisely um and so the again the illusion that if i'm just doing something anything (laughs) i'm contributing so that's a cultural tendency and maybe the renewal of contemplative prayer in the last 40 years or so is part of the movement of the spirit to kind of heal some of that in our particular culture Mm. So I think the answer to that is kind of complex and itself requires some discernment and, and kind of honesty about where are the pathologies here yes. or like yeah. just one final point. Um, I think it also changes in the course of a, of a life and there are seasons and I think that sometimes you see this in the, in the Buddhist tradition particularly where it's kind of 
more often you hear stories of someone who withdrew for 20 years and sat in their cave in the Himalayas and <laughs> meditated and then came back down from the cave and did their bit. When we talk in terms of balance, it, it's not just in terms of a daily or a weekly balance, but it may be that someone feels themselves called at a particular time either to withdraw more or to engage more and that that might be the call at that particular time. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating. And, Sarah, I hear you naming any number of things which really reveal the idolatry of so much of our current society. I hear you saying that the answer to our manic moralism, be it of the right, which is usually pelvic politics, or the left and the more hardcore than thou kind of positioning, can't be a Gnosticism added on. And so much talk of contemplative prayer is often dealing with my anxiety or my blood pressure, or I went on a retreat or somebody lent me the book, and I'm now adding on to my already manic, toxic mm. reality, mm. these extra practices. And there's danger if we talk about rhythm. It's uh, what's the rhythm we're going to add on to everything else which is already mm. animated by, we're talking discernment, spirits that aren't the sweet Holy Spirit, but mm. something else mm. going on that has nothing to do with the tenderness of God and everything to do with the time poor realities of our society but you also mentioned bodies and mm. it always excites me to hear theologians talk about the importance of bodies you talked about i'm, I'm reading at the moment willie james jennings uh, the christian imagination and he talks about the importance of place uh, mm. how we can't understand uh, white supremacy without actually understanding the places we're in and for all three of us as people who live on stolen land what that means i'm fascinated yes these are, are trends in theology at the moment but the practice of contemplation not as an add-on but from that which springs of living waters flow what does the practice of becoming a person of prayer mean to you as a theologian and how you do theology what does it mean to you as an ethicist and how you do ethics and uh, what's the interplay between those two realities? Between the prayer and the, the kind of... Well, I'm aware that for um, Andrew as an Orthodox Christian, uh, theologian is a term that's reserved for, what, five people in history, Andrew? Like, <laughs> Possibly. Uh, yeah, a theologian is one who prays, and the one who prays is a theologian. It's, it's, yeah. it's much yeah. less rationalistic in, in the kind of scholastic way that we're more accustomed to today yeah, yeah. that's right. you kind of get your degree and then you can yeah. um <laughs> put the, yeah yeah uh, and in that sense i always feel slightly uneasy about calling myself a theologian or being called a theologian because it, it does sound like sheesh <laughs> that's a good call <laughs> um, <laughs> um, <laughs> that line that you just quoted andrew from evagrius i i, mm -hmm. I think it's evagrius does resonate you know i think that's true 
one of the things about being a, a person of faith, let alone a, someone who aspires to be a theologian, it's very easy to learn how to talk about these things, you know, to, to, to talk about the creed, or I don't really mean the creed, about God, or we can give an account of what we're supposed to think about salvation, or we can learn the jargon. And again, there are certain traditions of Christianity where it's like you have to learn the jargon because you're constantly being right. checked as to whether you can deploy it appropriately so people can know whether you're kosher or not. Um, That's right. you're, you're saved by your doctrine and yeah. jargon about grace, not about, grace. Yeah, that's <laughs> the thing, and, and talk about it. And the same thing with prayer or meditation, you can talk about it. But it's a very different thing to talk from it. James, oh, James Allison. Wow. <laughs> You know, James Allison, that was a slight plagiarisation. He, he talks about the apostles aren't just witnesses to the resurrection, they're witnesses from the resurrection. You know, yes. something's happened. And, and I think that's what, again, in the Gospels, when the scribes and Pharisees or the people marvel at Jesus because he spoke not as the scribes and Pharisees but as one who has authority, like he's speaking from the experience. Yeah, wow. So, yes, you can be an academic theologian and you can, you know, engage with the literature and you can have ideas and they can be good ideas and, you know, blah, 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 but you can still tell the difference at the level at which something is happening, I, I think. Um, and that is where prayer and the journey that we alluded to earlier that prayer takes you on it, it is necessary, I think, to, to become receptive to the word which is from that place rather than you trying to speak over it somehow. I would say the same for ethics. So, and I guess that's to do with my conception of ethics, which again, when I did philosophy at university, again, what I was struck by was that shallowness. So the, the same applies, I think. And some of my exciting, uh, my excitement about talking to you, Sarah, was uh, the importance you place upon spiritual formation. I know initially you'd said, oh, well, um, of course, peacemaking is a concern for me, but it, it's not an expertise. Or I am more and more aware that people of prayer know so much more about what it is to be a peacemaker because of how they've had to learn to relate to parts of themselves which show up in prayer than those who have doctorates in peace building. Part of the in importance, I think, of bringing these things into conversation with each other is how beautifully you put it earlier that they're not actually divided and we don't need action and contemplation. We need contemplative action, that uh, these aren't two journeys but one journey and mm -hmm. there's two kind of pathologies that can be revealed by the extroverts who... Uh, haven't learnt to enter the silence and the introverts who um, haven't learnt to enter society. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and and these, these two sides actually show, and then we can put our language on the experience, uh, but there's something of that, that open secret that is an apophatic reality. And so how do we find language to speak of uh, that which is unspeakable yet speaks to us in this moment mm. i mean we're forced into poetry in prayer like we, we have no options right like where else are we to go other than the arts yes and also sometimes actually into the language of the tr tradition 
but you understand it in a t in a new way and and yes. but that then that itself becomes a problem for communication because when it's not inhabited in that way people think they know what it means or what you or what you're saying <laughs> people say no no it's not it's not quite that or <laughs> whatever yeah. and that that sense of then i guess i was thinking when you're talking about beautifully expressed that the introvert extrovert kind of thing and and i guess what we what we're seeking to get into is this is the space of responsiveness like and an obedience really of, of yeah. kind of um of, of deeply hearing what it is that's mine to do at this moment or ours to do or you know and then the, then the the daring to to act on that so I'll, I'll be interested to hear how some of those things that in your flannel graph Sunday school experience that um, you were sharing earlier, they didn't, they didn't warn me, then <laughs> things, whether it be, you know, the doctrine of the Holy Trinity um, or even the command of our Lord to love our enemies, this side of the experience of God in the silence of prayer, how are those things now inhabited differently for you? Certainly what I took from my Sunday school experience, and I don't blame Sunday school entirely, it was also my capacity to receive and, and how I received certain things, sure. you know. Um, it was about this trying to be good, trying to believe the right things, trying to suppress that in myself which didn't seem to match up or fit or... or and to realise through the, the contemplative journey as Richard Raw says, the, the way up is down. Um, you, you, you have to engage with those suppressed parts of yourself and you can't get anywhere where there's implicit denial of what's there. You might not like what's there, but um, <laughs> you've, it's got to be transformed. It can't just be ejected. One way, for example, love, love our enemies, I think formally I would have just tried very hard to love my enemy, you know, or, <laughs> you know, um, or told myself I was bad, you know, I shouldn't think bad of this person or I should let go of this or forgive this or, you know. Whereas what I've learned, I think, through this process is the first thing to do is to say, well, actually, I haven't, I don't forgive, I can't forgive, I can't let this go. Um, yeah. I... <laughs> <laughs> you know, like so sue me, but <laughs> and, and actually just be able to well, here I am, and this is what's so at the moment, and I don't want it to remain like this. I don't want to die bitter and twisted, <laughs> but at the yeah. moment, this is where I am. So that faith then becomes the faith to bring the whole of that before the love and mercy of God, yeah. trusting that you won't be smited for it. But in fact, <laughs> that's, that's how grace will work with you. Um, yeah. And so that the real love of enemy is not something I do. It's, it's a kind of a experience I can sometimes find myself in filled with gratitude and, yeah. and, <laughs> you know, like, and you know, it's not in a pious way, you know, oh, it's not me, it's only God in me. No, of course, it's partly me because I showed up. I was willing That's to. Right. Like, <laughs> you know, I hate that, you know. Cr cr credit where credit's due. That's well, right. 
thing. And sometimes the pastoral care where, oh, I just get myself out of the way and I let God work. It's like, oh, bullshit, you're right. <laughs> 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 yeah, so, so it is you. You did show up. You've sought to allow something to be wrought in you. Mm. But when it is wrought, you know it's not you. It, it's as That's if it's... Right. You know, and mm-hmm. and then you don't have to worry that I'll stop loving this person because it's not all about effort anymore. It's it's yes. it's it's kind of happened in you, and and I think that for me, I think that's been the hugest thing that the trust in the journey through my own dividedness and woundedness, and you know, Julian of Norwich, I think somewhere says, "Your sins become your glory." Mm. Yeah. Amen. And that's something that the, the photocopies of photocopies of photocopies, which, like, it wasn't me, it points to a reality, but then there's undergoing that reality. Yeah. And you can, you can tell the def- difference because deliverance is devastating. Yeah. So, uh, unlike the false pietism where it props ourselves up in our ego and we think, yeah. actually, in my humility, I'm pretty freaking fantastic. <laughs> That's right. Versus the, the devastating experience. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Of, of what it is to, to listen deeply in ourselves to the Holy Spirit and to listen deeply to, to others. I, I loved the way you talked of um, how good gets in the way almost and our our games of being good gets in the way Mm. of encountering others Mm. um Mm. but would you speak a little to the journey of the self when it moves from our projects of perfection and our agenda of being good uh, whether it's socially in activism or uh, personally uh, in our spirituality would you speak a little to when we leave those things behind and the self that emerges in prayer? For me, part of the process of leaving that behind is, you know, a couple of stages. One was getting to a point of total burnout um, and kind of sense that I couldn't do what I thought I needed to do to be good enough. Wow. And I, it was a terrible time, like it lasted for a couple of years and it was you know anxious and this sense that I somehow had to earn my place and because I was so burnt out knowing that I just couldn't I I didn't have the energy there was a sense that my life was just something shameful that I would just have to get through until I could die um because I couldn't do what I thought I had to do to be good enough and and the grace was and this was a kind of profound conversion experience really was of finally being able to be with that enough, not resist it, but actually to just own. And the word I, I, I said to myself was I'm inadequate. And, and when I said that word at one level, I thought, actually, that's not true. I just made that up. And at another level, it was like, yeah, I'm inadequate. How great. Isn't that fantastic? I'm inadequate. Like, I'm inadequate. And, <laughs> and it was kind of like, oh, and if I could finally just be inadequate, then 
I could just be. (laughs) (laughs) That was a a deep moment of kind of realising I can't make myself good and I don't have to. That was the the breakthrough um, into a liberation. And then a few years later, what happened through, you know, through this continuing journey was that I got drawn as I thought and, and as I still believe into making a choice that many people around me thought was morally wrong and I would have thought was morally, you know, so it was a, it was a kind of a deep wrestling with can this be true or am I deluded and there wasn't any voice from heaven guaranteeing that it was the right thing you know but it it, so that was an experience then of actually all people around me judging judging that I totally lost the plot um and so having to learn to live faithfully as best as best I could discern in obedience to what I thought I was called to in the face of no agreement that was another experience having to live into a self that's on the other side of being good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, and it's that- devastating. Like it's um, mm-hmm. uh, that, that sense of social rejection from the very community that we sometimes look to for validation in the midst of our anxiety about inadequacy we look to to be reflected back that we we are of worth to walk through that the other side and know that all i've got is how i'm named in my baptism man that is a difficult journey yeah it was (laughs) and 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 because it's not just in the midst of that that you're 100 percent convinced that you are you know justified you know and and again i guess there's reflections again on justification became important to me it's like well all I've got is this desire and I may have got that wrong you know maybe that is wrong but as best I can discern it and I've got a trust in God that somehow that will be honoured even if I have read things or whatever that was a real experience of um again that sense of poverty in the end, it's liberating. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's so devastating to realise that in the reign of God, there is no waste. And so this stuff will either be recycled or it will rot, but it's not going anywhere. And we have to be with it. It's um, humbling. Hey, thanks for listening. Since the Parasong Podcast is a production of the Institute for Religion, Peace, and Justice at St. Stephen's University, you can check out our entirely online certificate program that explores peace theology, the inner transformation of a peacemaker, practical nonviolence and peace building, the factor of religion in peace and conflict, and peace and violence in the Old and New Testaments at our website, irpj.org backslash certificate. We are accepting applications for the winter 2019 semester, so feel free to apply at ssu.ca backslash IRPJ hyphen application. And if you like what you heard on this episode today, please subscribe on either iTunes, SoundCloud, or our website, irpj.org backslash podcast, and encourage others to subscribe as well. 
And you can, of course, follow Jared and I on Facebook and Twitter if you feel like receiving little snippets of subversive behavior and thinking every once in a while. And if you want to learn more about Sarah Bachelor and what she's up to, you can visit benedictus.com.au for more information.